Right, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be um, in verses 21 through 26 and talking about anger. Uh, we're continuing kind of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, in the previous section, just to kind of back up before we move into the new section here, um, Jesus has told us some pretty important stuff that we want to make sure we look at. He's told us that he's not the law abolisher, but that he is the law fulfiller. And this is critical that we get this. Because first, he's telling us that the law is good. He didn't, he didn't come to get rid of it. Second, he's telling us that even though the law is good, it, it's, it's how God wants people to live, but it's, it's a terrible way for us to try to get into heaven by following it. So, so it's, not good. it's not a good way for us to get into heaven. And that's because of what he says in verse 20. If you look at that, it says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking to, about those who are considered the holiest among them all. These are the people who have devoted their lives to God. They know their Bibles better than anybody else. Uh, they're, they're like the cream of the crop. Their righteousness beats your righteousness. And that's what he's saying. These guys are more righteous than you are, and they can't even make the cut. So where does that leave us? Now, if Jesus was the law abolisher, this would be great news. It's like, hey, you know, I didn't, if, if it was like, I came to get rid of the law, you don't have to worry about it. Um, but, but that's not what he's saying. God's holy standard still applies. In fact, he wouldn't be very just if he did just abolish it and say it doesn't matter. Can you imagine a judge who did this? If you, if you think of a judge that said, you know, I know you robbed a bank and killed a couple of hostages. You blew up the building. But you know what? I'm a law abolisher. It's okay. You're free to go. I mean, that, we would all be upset by that, wouldn't we? That doesn't make any sense. What a terrible judge. But God is not a terrible judge. He's perfectly just and he's perfectly holy, so he cannot turn a blind eye to our sin. And that's why the next part of what Jesus says becomes such good news for us. I didn't come to abolish the law, but you know what I did come to do? I came to fulfill it. He came to satisfy the requirements of the law for you because you couldn't do it. So he, he satisfies it. He fulfills that. We couldn't accomplish it, but he can. His righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees combined. And he's willing to give that righteousness to us. He's willing to impute it to us, to give you that record so that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's done by faith. So in our text this morning, he's going to drive this point home even further because inevitably there were people there that day and there are people still today who think they have what it takes to make it to heaven. They, they can do enough. They can probably get this figured out. And if you think about the crowd he was addressing that day, they were, it was filled with people who had been brought up with this idea, idea of law-keeping. That was their ticket to heaven. And people still have that same mindset today. If you ask most people if, um, you know, why they will be allowed to go to heaven, what will they say? Because I'm a pretty good person. That's, what, that's the answer you'll get back. I'm a good person. It's pretty normal to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. I'm really good at it. I think, I think a lot of myself. Um, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to dispel, though, by what he teaches in our section today as he talks about anger. And this is going to be the first of six practical examples he's going to give us uh, that, are, that are covering areas of the law where we think we're just crushing it. You know, we're, we're, we're killing it in this area. We can, we can do this all day long. But actually, he's going to turn it into a way that it, it actually crushes us instead. So the, the topics he's going to talk about are anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. These are all relational commandments that have to do with the way we treat each other. Now, he starts this section out with these famous words. You have heard it said, 
but I say. In other words, he's saying, this is what you think it means, but I'm going to give you the real intended meaning of it. And I, I don't want you to miss the fact that, that Jesus is doing something astonishing here. I mean, shockingly astonishing here in what he does. He's taking the law, which was given by God, and he's reinterpreting it or expanding upon it. Who can do that? Who can say, God said this, but let, let me tell you what he really meant. Who can do that? Only God can do that. And that's important we don't miss that. There is no difference between the voice that spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and the voice that's speaking on this mount in this sermon that we're reading. Same voice. And it's just further proof of the claim of Jesus, his divinity. We just ran into somebody the other day. They said, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. You guys just add that in. It's like, no, he did over and over and over again. And if you say, hey, this is what the law means, even though this is what God said, let me tell you what it really means. You're claiming to be God. There's no mistaking that. So here we go. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So that's our text. Jesus starts out by saying, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, murder which is simply uh, restating the sixth commandment. It's something we're all familiar with. Uh, not murdering is something that is almost universally accepted as, as we all agree with that in principle. I say in principle because there are murders that take place. I'm thinking of abortion where we, we pretend like that's not murder. There, there's this, that's really the, you know, the, the method here is pretend like that's not really a life. And then, then we don't have to call it murder. But, but when we know it's a life, everybody pretty much agrees that murder is wrong. And it also deserves swift judgment. That's something that everybody agrees with. Now, I remember growing up, uh, Roman Catholic, and I remember like the bar to strive for, for me, was just make sure you don't kill anybody. I, in my mind, I thought as long as I don't do that, you know, then I'm going to go to heaven. That's all I, it's a pretty low bar, but I liked it because it allowed me to do everything else I wanted to do pretty much. Just don't kill people and you're good. And isn't that often our mindset, really, when you think about it? What's the most I can get away with and still go to heaven? That's, that's how I thought. But then Jesus comes along and says, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Everyone who is angry with his brother or insults his brother or calls him a fool is just as guilty before God and just as deserving of punishment. It's like, well, that changes everything. That, that puts the bar completely out of reach for me because I do this a lot. I'm angry more often than I care to admit. I mean, I, I think I'm even guilty of it today, right? I was driving in here, and Kirk took my parking spot, and I said, rock on! Not really. But it would have happened if he would have, probably. So what Jesus is doing here, this is meant to crush anyone thinking they have the ability to measure up to God's standard. It's meant to force you to realize you cannot do it. He even ends this section by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's like, oh, is that, is that all? Is that the bar? Okay. That's, you know, who can do that? Who among you can do that? 
None of it. So, and then you have to ask the question, Jesus, why would you say this? Are you just taunting me? Are you just going, you know, ha ha, you, you know, you can't do it. Neener, neener. Is that? No, that's not who Jesus is. Like, you're never going to make it. That would be horrible. So it might sound like a harsh thing that Jesus is doing here, but it's actually incredibly gracious because what he's doing is he's letting us know our true predicament so that we don't make any mistake about it before it's too late. He wants you to know you can't do this. You need someone who can. It's kind of like this idea, I, you know, it's funny, we, we don't realize how sinful we are sometimes. We think we're just a little off. I think that's how we like to think. And it, I don't know if you, I, I understand the way ships work. Uh, they have these dials that they set. And if it's just a degree off, you don't think it's that bad. That's just a, one degree off. But what happens over the course of a voyage or over the course of a lifetime is that one degree keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And pretty soon you're, you're, you're off in no man's land. Right? And I think what we think is that we're going to stand before God and he's going to look at us and go, oh, you're just one degree off, you know, you little scoundrel, you know, rough your, ruffle your hair and say, come on in. That's not what's happening here. We are, we're off in another place. We're not even close at all. We don't get how sinful for, we really are. And for instance, I think we, we, we tend to like to think that sin, our sin only includes our outward actions, the stuff people can see. That's the stuff we generally get concerned about. Now, it stands to reason, if you think about it, too, because the way our judicial system works, you cannot be convicted in a court of law based on what's happening inside of you. The judge can't see that. He can't go, well, you, you seem pretty angry in there, so I'm going to sentence you to... That wouldn't work. There needs to be evidence. There needs to be an outward action of some kind for this to, to work. So I think we think this way. But that's not how it works in God's court. Because guess what he can do? He can see what's going on in your heart. He knows all that stuff. He, he gets it. So, you know, just like the Pharisees, we don't want to be like the Pharisees who just focused on the outward stuff. You remember how Jesus talked to them? He, he said, you guys are like a, a cup that's clean on the outside, but just gross on the inside. You're like a, a whitewashed tomb that looks good on the outside, but it's just full of dead bones on the inside. He wants us to be concerned with what's inside and what's outside. Both matter to him. And that includes... Our thoughts and our attitudes, the stuff we hope nobody sees, nobody finds out about. It's that stuff too, because God sees it all. It actually tells us in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God's not missing any of that stuff. All of it goes on our rap sheet, which means the situation is far worse than we imagine. Right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> it's like, great. Now what? Well, I'm reminded of this wonderful quote that I love from Tim Keller when I, when I read this section and thought about it. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Jesus is our only hope of fixing our rap sheet. When we believe in him, when we confess our sin and repent from it and turn to him in faith, he takes that rap sheet and he nails it to the cross and it's gone. It's clean. Our record is clean. And, and if you have that desperate need where you know you can't do this, I can't measure up, I can't be righteous, I can't be perfect, Jesus is the only one who can solve that for you. And he's willing to. So with all of that in mind, we, we can better understand what, he, what Jesus is doing when he says this. You have heard it said... 
To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, which is the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The anger Jesus is describing here is clearly sinful. It may not result in murder, but it's the root of it, right? It's where, it's where that desire to murder comes from. Matthew 15, Jesus kind of explains this a little bit further where he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of, the how, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So even though we may not see our anger as, as sin, um, it is. And, and I, I'm really good at justifying my anger. I don't know if you're like I am, but I don't see it as a problem because I think my view is the right view. <laughs> That's how I like to think. We ha I have the right to be angry because I'm right. So this isn't, this isn't a problem. Uh, I was really surprised when, I don't know, do you remember those premarital, I don't know what it was called, I want to say Briggs and Stratton, but that's an engine. Myers-Briggs, I think it was called. One of those personality tests you take. So Joy and I are getting ready to be married, and the pastor has us take this test, and um, it, it kind of charts the stuff that you should be concerned about. And on my chart, uh, where anger is, it went off the page. I mean, it was sky, I mean, it, and I remember thinking, I don't think I'm angry. I don't feel angry. I'm not mad right now. But I had an anger problem, and I had no idea that I had an anger problem. And now, now in hindsight, I can look back and I can see it really clearly. But at the time, I had no idea. I was surprised. You know, my counselor's like, you know, you have a little, little anger problem, Brent. And I'm like, oh, all right. Why? What, what was causing that? Where was that coming from? And, and I, I just think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. What is causing us to be so enraged? And so I've come up with a few examples of things that I've seen in other people's lives that I thought I would share with you guys just to help you all out. It's really the stuff I see in my own life. So what about this? What about when somebody insults you or makes fun of you? That, that gets me. When somebody offends me or hurts my feelings, I get angry. When somebody interrupts me, my wife's not here so I can't, you know, she might not listen to this, but... She does it, and I, I just, this thing happens to me every time. Like, do you realize who I am and how important what I have to say is? You know, and I get this thing that happens. When somebody ignores me, it's the same thing. When somebody doesn't value my input, because my input is awesome, you know, that's what I'm thinking. And you don't want this? You don't want this good stuff? I get mad. When somebody wastes my time, how, do you know how valuable my time is? You know, that's, I get angry. When somebody cheats me or takes advantage of me, cuts me off in traffic, that one really gets me. I tell you what, somebody, I, I get, you know, it's funny. When somebody inconveniences me, I get very angry. When somebody tells me that I'm wrong, it starts to really boil. When my view is challenged or my, my way of doing things is challenged, like that's not the right way to do it. This is, it's like, oh, I've thought this through. This is the only way to do it. You know, I get that thing going. Somebody disagrees with me. When those things happen, I start to get enraged. I start to get angry. And I feel like it's right for me to feel that way. And Jesus is saying, no, that's sin, buddy. That's gross sin. And then you start to say, well, what is the root of all of that? Where is the root of that anger? And it comes down to my selfish pride. I have a really high view of myself and my opinion. I have some kind of an idea that Brent deserves better 
And that's gross. It's funny because, as, as, and I'm considering myself in the older generation now, we look at the young whippersnappers and say, these people are so entitled. They think everything should just be handed to them. We hate that. Well, guess what? Guess what this is? There's a word for it. It's called entitlement. <laughs> and we're just as guilty of it, just in a different way. Who do I think I am? I mean, I have to stop and say that. Brent, who do you think you are? Are you really that important that nobody should ever do anything to cross you or inconvenience you or upset you? You have to think pretty highly of yourself to feel justified in your anger when you're willing to, or in this, when you're willing to have hate towards somebody else for the way that they treat you. Hate. That's what it is. I recognize it. Somebody has the audacity to treat me like this. I hate him. And then I think of Jesus. He was treated this way. All of these things I just mentioned, he was treated like this. He was treated poorly by everybody, and they had no right to treat him that way. Did he get angry like this? Did he retaliate the way I want to? No, he was without sin. I can't say that. I deserve to be treated this way most of the time, if I'm being honest. And yet I feel completely right to be angry and to want retribution. And that is sinful, and it's arrogant, and it's ugly. And it has no place in the life of a believer, a follower of Christ. If you need to gauge how you're doing, you know, wondering if like when you've gone too far in your anger, Jesus helps us with that. He gives us a couple of clues with the words raka and fool. The moment that a conversation devolves into name calling and insults, anger has entered the building, right? Hatred has filled your heart. If you get to the point where you're going to start throwing down names at people, it's gone bad, <laughs> right? According to scholar A.B. Bruce, raka expresses contempt for a man's mind and fool expresses contempt for his heart and character. So raka was a derogatory term that basically meant um, a person was empty-headed. They were basically calling that person uh, stupid, inferior. We might use words like moron or idiot or you know, buffoon or something like that. Or if, if you want, buffoon's a good one. I like Bugs Bunny. What a maroon. I always like that one, but I don't use it. Yeah. yeah. But if, if I if, word, if I could if, let's call you a buffoon. Well, it would be right. Um, but then let me get a little bit more uh, toe steppy. What about words like libtard and snowflake? <laughs> these are the ones that I hear Christians using. I hear Christians using these words and, and thinking that it's okay, and they're not okay. Together, these two words that Jesus mentions imply that somebody is worthless, that they are good for nothing, that they have no value. They're basically a waste of space. That's what we're saying. That's what we're doing when we say these things. And if you want to crash course on what this looks like, just spend an hour looking at the comment sections on social media, especially in political threads. You, you will learn all kinds of new and creative ways to just spew hate and vitriol on everyone. That's what goes on there. And what becomes very plain very quickly is the person that's doing the insulting sees themselves as greatly superior. They're better, they're smarter, they're more valuable, and you don't deserve to be in their presence. I mean, that's how it comes across when you read these comments. So can you see why Jesus doesn't want his kingdom people to be this way? Do you see why he hates it so much and why it's so ugly to him? And this is why he points out that judgment will result from these things. He's warning us and giving us more incentive by, by explaining the judgments that can result from this kind of unrepentant anger and aggression. And so angry people will face the consequences of alienating their friends and family. That's the first thing he mentions. And everyone else, because nobody wants to be around that guy. 
can you, you know, when an angry person comes in, it's almost, you just, oh, here it comes. You know, here we go again. You just have that, that sense of doom that enters when an angry person walks in the room. That person will likely end up alone. There's a judgment that will be incurred from that. Another judgment they could face is legal consequences because they could end up in jail. Isn't it amazing how anger can escalate things so quickly to where you're not even in your right mind in what you would do? I, I couldn't help but think of road rage and the way people do this stuff when they're driving. You can go from a pretty sane individual to a lunatic in seconds when you're driving your car. What is that going on? I've done this, unfortunately. You know, I, somebody's cut me off or something, and all of a sudden, oh, it's on. You know, I'm riding their bumper, and I'm like, I'm going to show them. What am I going to do if they stop and get out of their car? You know, I'm going to put it in reverse and go home. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to do anything. But in my mind, it's like, oh, we got to, you know, it's crazy what, what you do. That kind of stuff will land you in jail at some point. It's not a good plan. And then the final judgment is the worst that Jesus mentions. You could stand before God and end up in hell over your anger. So let's recap. Loss of friendship, loss of freedom, loss of eternal life. This is the fruit of anger and where it takes us. It is something to be taken very seriously, which is why the Bible tells us to deal with it early and often. If you read in Ephesians chapter 4, I know you guys are familiar with this verse. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. The idea of not letting it go down on your anger is solve it that day. Fix it quickly. Don't put it off. It's important. And the reason he gives is because Satan loves your anger. He loves it when you're angry because what it does is it gives him a base of operation in your life. It allows him to set up shop in you and do what he wants to because you're not in your, you're not in your right mind when you're, when you're angry. Now, somebody could rightly ask the question and wonder, is, it, is anger always wrong? And the answer is no. There, there are times when righteous anger is, is displayed in the Bible. Jesus expressed this kind of anger uh, with the religious leaders especially. You remember when, when they were taking advantage of God's people financially, being greedy and stealing from him, and he went into the temple and saw that. You know, he had this righteous anger where he turned the tables over and he drove them out with a whip, all right? Righteous anger. Uh, Jesus was without sin, so we know it wasn't wrong. Uh, we also know that, when, you know, he hated their hypocrisy. And he would even say things to them that, that, you know, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, blind fools. He was hard, to, you know, your father, the devil. Those are harsh things to say. We should also get angry over things that, that, get, that God, you know, that God is angry about. Things like racism and sex trafficking, and abortion, and there's all kinds of things like that that should anger us as well. But, but this is anger over sin and injustice, right? Not, the, the, most of the time, the things we get angry about have to do with me, not that kind of stuff. So some good questions to ask yourself to determine if you're experiencing sinful anger or righteous anger would be this. Is my anger present because the glory and character of God is being besmirched, or is it because the glory of me and my character is being besmirched. I love that word, by the way. It's just a good word. You don't get very many chances to say besmirched, so I got two today. Is, is my anger present over the defense of others or over the defense of me? Is my anger and hate directed at sin or is it directed at people? You know the old adage of love the sinner and hate the sin? You know, that, so so that not all anger is sin. Some of it is actually right, but we, we need to be careful and know the difference. 
And then I also couldn't help but think about what about victims of abuse or violent crime? Shouldn't they be allowed to, to be angry at their abuser? I mean, it would be weird if they weren't, honestly. When, when, when you think about some of the things that people have endured, um, anger, you know, again, it, it's a natural response. But I want to say that to live in a perpetual state of anger is extremely unhealthy for you and for those around you. Don't, don't let that happen to you. We need to get to the place where we can take vengeance is mine, I will repay. We need to take it out of our inbox and put it into God's inbox. That's his job. And he will do it right. You have to wait sometimes. It doesn't happen the minute you want it to because you want it to be like lightning bolts coming down from heaven. But that's where it belongs. Otherwise, anger will become like a poison that, that will just destroy you. I mean, it'll eat you up. So if you've been hurt and wronged by someone, I would encourage you to hand it over to God and trust that he will deal with it as he sees fit in his time. But don't let it, don't let it consume you. So what are some, some kind of practical observations that, that we see in this section? Um, the first thing I, I just couldn't help but see is this. Angry people do not submit to the sovereignty of God. Peter, when Jesus was dying, said, when he suffered, or I'm sorry, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That was Jesus's mindset. Jesus trusted the Father's plan and he submitted himself fully to it. Are we trusting God with our circumstances or are we using anger to try to control them? <laughs> it's kind of the difference between saying, thy will be done and my will be done. And I'm pretty good at the latter. Do you believe that you control the outcome or that God controls the outcome? If we believe that we control the outcome, we will get angry when things don't go the way we want them to. But if we believe that God controls the outcome, we will trust him come what may. And I'm learning to go with trusting God. It's a process. It's hard to do. But, you know, I stop and think, okay, he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He loves me, and he knows what's best for me. Should I let God handle it, or should I handle it? You know, when you really weigh the options, it's like, well, it should be fairly obvious, right? He might just be better equipped than me to handle it. You know, I mentioned that my anger was off the charts when Joy and I got married. Um, God has changed me. I, I'm, not, I'm not like that anymore. I still get angry, but that doesn't characterize me. It even bothers my kids sometimes. They want me to get angry about stuff. Um, literally, you know, something will happen, and, and they'll be mad about something that's going on, and they're like, Dad, why aren't you angry? And it comes down to the fact that I'm, I'm, I, I'm trusting God to deal with it. And that <laughs> kind of rankles them. It's funny, but... Um, God is changing me. He's changing my heart. But this is what I've noticed. The more that I trust him, the less angry I am. If you find yourself consumed with anger when you're watching the news, when you're seeing what's going on around you, when, when your personal life or you're being attacked, think about this. The more you trust him, the less angry you will be. The next observation I see in this is that anger doesn't work. It doesn't work. James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We think that anger works because it makes, um, it makes us feel better. You know, when you blow off a little steam, when you get to kind of push somebody around a little bit, you feel pretty good about yourself at times, I guess. I don't know. Um, we, we think we can get things done that way. But it doesn't please God, and it doesn't point people to Jesus. So it ain't working. 
I remember having customers like this. I used to be in the copier repair world and, and uh, there were those customers that thought the way that you get something done, the way they get you there quickly is to throw a fit, like a little kid, throw a tantrum, be angry, threaten you. And, and that's how you got things done. And I remember thinking, these guys are, this, is, this isn't gonna work. You know what I'm gonna do when I have my list of customers that day? And again, this is me being spiteful, don't do that. But they're going to the bottom of the list. You know who's going to the top of the list? Kind people, respectful people, people that treat me nicely. That's just human nature. I, I don't know why people think that anger, bullying people is the way to get things done. It, it's not, it might work a little, but in, you know, at the end of the day, it's not the, best, it's not the best plan of attack. You know, I can think back on times when I've used my anger and my passive aggressiveness, which I'm pretty good at, unfortunately. You know, I've used it like a weapon to get what I want, to make things work. I can think about calling places, like they get my bill wrong or something, and this person answers the phone, and I can shred them. I can just, and, and get what I want. I can intimidate them and scare them, and you know, finally I'll just, you know, okay, we'll take it off the bill or whatever. <laughs> you know what else works? I found kindness and patience and, and love. I, the truth is both can work, but guess which one I'm ashamed of? And, and guess which one reflects the reality of Christ in me? It, you know, our anger beats people down. It tears them apart. It ruins relationships that we care about. It results in great sin and destruction. But love and kindness does just the opposite. It, it makes the people around us, it builds them up. And it, and it points them to Jesus. It draws them. When you, I don't know if you've had that experience where you, you know, you're in a situation where you should become angry and upset, and instead you show kindness and love. To watch that person's reaction, they're like, what is going on right now? And they don't know what to do with it. And it's such a, an amazing way for us to be able to point people to, you know what? That's of God. That's not me. That's God. It's a way for us to, to testify that Jesus is alive and he's in me. Because it ain't me. I want to do the, you know, the opposite of that. But it's so cool when we, when we do that. Anger is expected, but kindness comes. Grace comes. Mercy comes instead. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? He could have been angry with us, and yet he shows us grace. Anger doesn't work. Kill him with kindness. I love that old phrase. You know, When you're in those situations, humble yourself, take a deep breath, and kill him with kindness. Honey works better than vinegar, right? The next thing I see in this is that, that no one is worthless. No one should be called a waste of space because we are made in the image of God and we have value. Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And Jesus is equating murder and anger. So if somebody's been made in God's image and you call that person a worthless idiot, who are you disrespecting? You're disrespecting God. I am so glad that Jesus did not conclude that I was a worthless waste of space because he could have. You know, I just think of who I am and what I'm like. He could, have, he could have just written me off. He could have kept his anger towards me because of the way I've been. And he would have been perfectly right to do so. But he saw value. He saw enough value in me to go to the cross and die for me. I am not a worthless waste of space. I am beloved by Christ. Wow. And this, is this, this, this thing is true for others. If he did that for us, how can we not do the same thing for the people around us? You know, think about how many people right now, um, they think they're worthless. So many people, and especially young people now, they have no value. 
They think they're worthless. The suicide rates are through the roof. And are we going to reinforce that thinking through our anger? You say, yeah, you are a worthless waste of space. You are, you know, would we, are we going to do that? Are we going to reaffirm that in people? Or are we going to tell them how valuable they are to God and treat them with dignity and respect? I know what Jesus would have us do. It's not always easy, but it's obvious. And the last thing that I see um, in this section is the, the high value that Jesus puts on human relationships. You know, it's funny because as Christians, we would say that we put a very high value on human life, right? But do we put that same high value on human relationships? People that are actually alive and around us. Because the idea of abortion and suicide and euthanasia, that gets us up in arms. We're, we're like, we have to fight for those things. We have to be advocates for those. What about relationships around us that are dying? And, you know, do, do we care about those? Are we going to get excited and, 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 and fight for those as well? According to what Jesus is teaching in this passage, we should care about the relationships that are in our lives and the ones that are especially the ones that are dying. But before I go too far down this road, I want to acknowledge restoring relationships is not always easy. It's not always within our control. I know a lot of you have relationships that you have worked very hard to restore. You've done everything you can and they haven't been restored yet. So I'm not trying to beat you up. I, I know that that's the case. But there are many of us who have these relationships that we know we need to do something about and have not. And the truth is, many times we can. Many times we actually can. And it doesn't take that much effort. I just had this happen to me. My nephew, when he was very little, maybe 12 years old, um, his mom decided he needed to go live with his dad because he was a problem. And we were all pretty close, but he was kind of a problem child. So he moved away. And uh, I have completely ignored him basically since. And he has completely ignored us since. And what I did in my mind is I said, this guy wants nothing to do with me. He's mad at us. He doesn't like us. So I'll give him his space. And you know what he did? <laughs> Same thing. These people don't like me. They're mad at me. They hate me. So I'll just give them their space. And then my son, my oldest, reached out to him recently. They're two days apart in age and, uh, and checked in on him. And he called me and said, Dad, you need to get a hold of Titus. He thinks we all hate him. He thinks that this relationship is broken. And so I, I, I thought, okay, I, I needed, it's like, it always stinks when you're preparing a sermon and God's, you know, working on you first before he, um, so I texted him and I told him I missed him and I loved him and I'm sorry. And he said back to me, I miss you. I love you. And I'm sorry. It was like, wow, reconciliation of a relationship that was broken. It's, it's so cool when we see that happen. Relationships matter to God. And he gives us two examples um, and it's funny that these examples aren't what we think they would be. It's almost like he's turning it up again. So, you know, okay, it's, you know, murder. Okay, now it's anger. Now it's, it's not just like if I've screwed something up, I need to go make that right. He's going, no, no, if somebody's mad at you, you know, not just if you're mad at them. It stands to reason that if we're mad at somebody, okay, clearly we need to go make this right. But he's saying, no, if somebody's mad at you. Here's two of those again. It's like, oh, you're, you're turning it up again, Lord. Thank you. May I have another? It's that... He just keeps kind of amping it up. So two examples. One is a, of a worshiper. In verse 23, it says, So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Again, not that you have something against him, that he has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. He's saying it should be hard to worship when there's somebody holding a grudge against you. It should distract you, and, and you should want to make fixing that a priority. That's how important it should be. It should be more important than worship. That doesn't make any sense to us, does it? What's more important than worship? And God's saying relationships. 
They are. Our tendency is to drown out the conviction of the Holy Spirit by doing spiritual things. I don't know if you're good at this, but I, I'm pretty good at it. We used to have a child that was like this. We would say, hey, I want you to do your schoolwork. And he would be gone for a while. And it's like, did you do your schoolwork? No, but I took the garbage out and I, you know, I made my bed. And, and these are good things. Yeah, but you know what, what I want you to do though? Your schoolwork, <laughs> you know? So, so we find good things to do and ignore kind of what God is asking us to do. If the Holy Spirit has made you aware of a situation that he wants you to tend to, get on it. <laughs> don't dilly-dally. My dad used to say that. I love that. Dilly-dally. That's like lollygagging. I don't know which one's worse, but don't dilly-dally. If he's pressing it on you today to go and solve something, do it. Right? If you have to leave now, according to what we just read, it's okay. I would say, this is hard. This is not easy to do. It's hard to go to somebody that you know is angry with you, especially if you don't think they have a right to be. So prepare yourself, right, before you go to that person. Pray. Spend some time praying beforehand. That's number one. Two, be, go in there with a humble attitude, willing to take the high road. Don't go in there saying, well, I'll, 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 I'll say what I need to say. But the minute they do, you know, don't come in there with that idea that you're going to just go in with a, a humble attitude, take the high road, and, and make sure that your side of the street is clean. You know what that means? You know, you can't control what they do on their side, but you can control what you do on your side. Clean your side of the street. And that might mean that you need to say, I'm sorry. It might mean you need to say, hey, I know what I did wrong here and admit it. Um, make sure that in, in, in apologies and things like this, don't use the word but. The minute you say but, you've erased the apology. You've justified it. You've said, I'm, I'm sorry, but let me tell you all the reasons why this really isn't you know, my fault. <laughs> and that's what it does. Get the word but out of that apology. Once you've done everything you can, and you can have a clear conscience before the Lord, your job is done. It's up to him to take care of the rest. You can't make them forgive you. You can't, you can't do that. But, but I love that because at that point, you are free and clear to go back and worship again. Go back and finish what you were doing um, in the worship of the Lord. The second example it gives us is a lawsuit in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in this example, you've been accused of wrongdoing, and your accuser is taking you to court. It doesn't say whether it's right or not. It's just what, what's going on. And Jesus says, resolve that matter quickly. You know, even up to the last minute, even if it means as you're getting ready to walk into the courtroom, don't give up trying to resolve it, because it's better for everyone involved if it doesn't get to that point. Especially when you think about it. If somebody takes you to court, you know, that, that's a hard thing to, to recover from anger-wise. But don't let pride and anger get the better of you. Anger always has a way of blinding us and causing us to do unreasonable things. It's much better for you to swallow your pride, quell your anger, admit your fault, apologize, and do what you can to make amends. Especially since you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And I love that he puts this in there. It's like the judge might rule in favor of your accuser. And then you're going to be angry and in jail and pay a fine. You know, it's like, that's way worse, right? I think it's always helpful for us to think about Jesus at times like this too, because he had every right to take us to court. He had every right to make us stand before a judge. And instead, he put a priority on reconciliation, right? That was more important to him. <laughs> Praise God for it. And now he's given us that same mindset. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God didn't hold, keep, keep those things, the record of those things. And, and we need to be the same way. We need to have that same mindset. So in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us two important things. The first is that this is what kingdom people will be like once Jesus takes hold of us. Once Jesus comes into our life and transforms us, this, this idea of anger and, and retribution and all that is, is supposed to go away. We're supposed to actually be, in the way he said it in John, all men will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. Right? The way we love each other is going gonna, is gonna to prove that Christ has taken up residency in us and that we are his people. God's love is seen in us when sinful anger is dealt with and it's evidence that Jesus has redeemed us. But through this very same sermon, Jesus is also telling us something else. He's teaching us how short we fall from being able to attain righteousness on our own. So anger is a sin that's on par with murder because they both come from the same place. So we may not be guilty of murder, but we all are guilty of anger, every one of us. And the kind of anger Jesus is describing here deserves judgment. And so I'm reminded of this every time I get angry. And unfortunately, it's, it's, you know, it's still too often. But, but you're meant to feel the weight of this so that it will drive you to Jesus. If you know that you can't attain righteousness, you can't solve this on your own, then you need to flee to Jesus and run to him for grace and forgiveness, and he will give it to you. And, and that's the good news of, of the gospel. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements. He has made it possible for you to be perfect before his Father through his work on the cross. And he will take your sin and your anger and the judgment for that upon himself, and he will give you his righteousness. He, he's fulfilled that for you if you will receive it by faith. It's already accomplished. He said it is finished. You just need to bow on your knees before him and confess Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I cannot do this on my own. I can't do this without you. And I want to turn from this and to you and, and believe that you are who you said you were and that you've accomplished what you've said you've accomplished. We trust in his works for us and not our works for him. Right. And Father, thank you so much that your word contains a way for us to walk in newness of life, that, that we don't have to walk around in anger, with this, this, I see so much of it in the world today, with people just seething under the surface with this anger. You've given us every reason um, to be loving, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, and to be filled with kindness, to walk in newness of life with those around us, and then to, to, to be ministers of reconciliation everywhere we go. So give us that, that burden, Lord. If there's people in our lives right now that we know we need to um, talk to and try to, try to square things away with, help us to do that, Lord. Help us to trust you with it, knowing that it's your will and that you want this from us. And we pray that you would just do amazing things, that you would, you would uh, bring people to yourself even through the way we respond at these times. And we ask it in Jesus' name.